0: Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done.
1: The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at Forum.com.
2: From the heart of where innovation, money and power collide in Silicon Valley and beyond... This is Bloomberg Technology with Emily Chang.
3: and this is Bloomberg Technology. Coming up in the next hour, Hollywood breathes a sigh of relief. Netflix is growing again. Expectations were low after the streaming giant lost subscribers last quarter and suddenly pivoted to ads. What's working? We'll discuss. Plus, women are leaving the top ranks of companies at higher rates than ever before, according to a new report from McKinsey and Lean In, what they're calling the great breakup later this hour. And why has Zuck been so quiet about Facebook these days? The Meta CEO seems to be ignoring his flagship social network to focus on luring people into a vacant virtual world. We're gonna get to all of that in a moment, but first for more on Netflix, I wanna bring in Bloomberg's Lucas Shaw. Okay, Lucas, what are are the good things uh, you're seeing in this report? Why are we seeing a turnaround before a lot of these new changes have even been put into effect?
4: Well, it's, it's growing again. So it added 2.4 million subscribers in the, the most recent quarter. That's way above what they forecast, way above what Wall Street forecasts. They also estimated 4.5 million additions in the fourth quarter. So Netflix is still gonna have its worst year in a, in a really long time. Uh, but people had been jittery because it had shrunk for two quarters in a row. The fact that it's growing again is seen as, as a positive sign. The fact that it has all these hit shows that came out in the most recent quarter, also a positive sign. If you wanted to be a bit of a pessimist, you could say, why did they only add 2.4 million when it had all those hits? And that's, that's a legitimate question. But I think there was, you know, the, the response to its slowdown had been so dramatic uh, that a lot of people are just breathing a sigh of relief that it seems to be back on a more stable trajectory.
3: Now, what do we know about the ad supported tier and how is that impacting your outlook on how much better we can get here?
4: Well, it's going to release the the new tier or or start selling it in November. It'll cost 7 bucks a month. Uh, You'll watch about four or five minutes of commercials per hour. Most of the programs that people watch or care about will be available, but not all. You won't have ads in new movies. You won't have ads in kids programming, although you may have sort of a a pre-roll ad, just not ads in the middle of it. Um, And so that means that Netflix's ad tier is, is cheaper than HBO Max's ad tier, cheaper than Disney Plus's forthcoming ad tier, a little more expensive than some of the smaller rivals. I think people are pretty optimistic that this should boost uh, the company's performance in the years ahead, at the the very least give people a reason not to cancel. But Netflix is saying it doesn't expect to see any material impact on its business in the fourth quarter, uh, more likely in in the coming year. It could, of course, just be trying to manage expectations. What
3: about when it comes to the content strategy? I mentioned Bridgerton is my favorite show, but, but, you know, it's been a while. And, you know, they talked about Monster, the the Jeffrey Dahmer story. What are you seeing as kind of the next generation of big Netflix hits?
4: Well, I think there's the perception and then there's the reality, right? There's a perception in the marketplace right now that programming on Netflix has gotten a lot worse, that they're funding lots of bad shows, bad movies, and that people have moved on to HBO Max, to Apple TV+, to Disney+. And while I think there's some truth to that, that, and even Netflix has said that perhaps it's making too much, For the most part, Netflix is still making a lot of shows that people want to watch. It had movies in The Grey Man and Purple Hearts that people watched. It had Dahmer, which was one of its biggest hits. It had the new season of Stranger Things. It had this Korean show, Extraordinary Attorney (laughs) Woo, that was hugely popular. Uh, and I, so I think you'll see a lot more of that. Netflix just making a wide ri- range of shows that appeal to people on the coast, of so people in the middle of the country, people all over the world. And we'll see over time if, if they're doing enough to get people to come in. I think there's also a lot of concern about how much Netflix is spending on marketing. And the company is, is just starting to adjust its approach there. So
3: what are folks saying in Hollywood? Obviously, Netflix isn't doing all of this in a vacuum. You've got all of the competitors out there making their changes as well.
0: well.
4: I think people are on the one hand relieved because Netflix's problems had impacted the stock price and the strategy for a lot of its competitors. So even though they are rivals to one another. Nobody wants to see Netflix collapse because every other company has basically bet their future on streaming. At the same time, you do hear a lot of of the whispers and snickers about the quality of programming on Netflix and how it's not as good as it used to be and not as fun as it used to be. Like I said, I think there's some truth to that. But some of that is also just a little bit of kind of lack of understanding of what people are actually watching. Uh, But we'll also see in the the next few weeks what the results are like from Warner Brothers Discovery with HBO Max, from Disney with Disney Plus, Unfortunately, we don't really get numbers for Apple TV and and Amazon broken out. Uh, But the the positive results for Netflix should be a sign that if you can program well, there's still plenty of growth to be had in streaming. So
3: look, obviously, you know we're in the middle of a major macroeconomic downturn. You have consumers reevaluating their priorities. How many subscriptions do we really want to have? There's been a big reset in the content business. Where do you think this stands, let's say, a year from now? How does this all shake out?
4: Well, the big question is at what point some of these players decide that they'd be better off consolidating, right? You know, you talked about people being more sensitive with how much they're spending. I think even the, the most optimistic person would say that people don't want to have to pay for more than four or five streaming services, and there are a number of services going for that mass scale. So, does that mean that a Paramount Plus, Warner Brothers Discovery with HBO Max, uh, you know, a, a, a Peacock from NBC Universal, do some of those companies consolidate in some way? We've already seen. Disney Disney and Fox come together. We've already seen Viacom and CBS come together. Uh, There's been a lot of uh, of speculation that at some point there will be bigger deals. Uh, We just don't know when.
3: All right. Lucas Shaw, thank you, as always, for your analysis and insights here. Appreciate it. Intel's self-driving technology company mobilized targeting a valuation far below previous expectations for its IPO. Intel had recently lowered its expected valuation of Mobileye from $50 billion to $30 billion due to turbulent market conditions. Now that's closer to $16 billion. Billion. Here to discuss, our Bloomberg deals reporter, Crystal Z. So clearly the market condition's not helping here, but what's behind this another, another valuation cut?
5: Yeah, so basically IPO takes a long time to prepare. They probably came up with the idea of listing this unit, mobile eye, when market was still booming. And right now it's went from 50 to 16. And 16, I would like to say, it's not probably the final valuation. We mm. Launch with the range. Do you it think could,
3: it could go lower?
5: It could go higher. It could go <laughs> lower. If we're optimistic, we think it could go higher, but uh, it's not the va- final valuation. Um, and we will know next week when they actually do price to deal. And are you expecting them to, to go ahead with this? I mean, is there any kind of cold feet on the other side? Like, maybe we shouldn't do this right now. So if the market uh, on the pricing day falls on a day like today where things are doing okay, like they could well go ahead, but everything is market dependent. It could just fall, price on a day where everything is in the red and it would just be a total disaster and we shall see but right now I think they have the intention to go ahead with this listing. And what is the exact timeline? We should expect a listing uh, next week, perhaps middle of the week. There's this question of you know, the
3: unprofitable uh, IPO and whether that era is, is coming to an end and obviously you've covered so many IPOs in boom times and now you're covering the lack thereof. You know how are companies thinking about strategy in terms of what they want to get out
5: of a public offering? Yeah, so anyone who has raised money in the past year when valuation was still good, when money was still available, will unlikely be looking at an IPO. I think the mentality very much right now is that if you don't have to do it, don't do it. And mm-hmm. I'm sure that's what the bankers are advising their clients as well. But if you're a company like Mobileye where you have a parent company that is looking to return some money, then you would go ahead with this listing. But for people, who have a choice, uh, they will most likely not. So that also could give it an interesting power dynamic. If you're an investor and you know that this company needs to go public, you have more pricing power. So
3: how long does the drought last, in your view?
5: Well, a lot of bankers are saying that we should expect the rest of the year to be quiet or even the first quarter of 2023. So we will likely see some deals coming back meaningfully in the second quarter of 23, And it would most likely start with companies that are potentially revenue positive or even profitable. Mm -hmm. Uh, The things that we have covered in the last year where they have no revenue, they have no profit, those will have to wait. All right, Crystal C, we'll keep
3: checking back in with you and see if the timeline changes. Thank you. I want to move on to another IPO that's been highly anticipated, that is Instacart. Let's bring in Adam Birnbaum to discuss. He's the executive director at GP Bullhound, a tech advisory and investment firm with a billion dollars under management. So Instacart, uh, Adam, another one that's had you know, massive valuation cuts. I believe it was you know, valued at $39 billion at the height um, of its yep. popularity in the middle of the pandemic. Now we're down to 13 billion dollars. What's your expectation with this one.
2: I think you know Instacart's in an interesting position because they don't really need the money right now. They've done a few things that are very, very astute. One, they raised capital and a higher valuation. Secondarily, they got their business model such that they became cash flow positive. And number three is They've uh, evolved their business model so that they're, they have alternative sources for it. So they have an advertising model, which is doing extremely well. All that adds up to they don't need to do a offering right now. The, the reason for doing an offering would just be to get some liquidity to a 10-year-old company mm-hmm. for some of their employees. But I don't think they need to force to do it. I think there's another, there's another dynamic, though, that's out there, Emily, that's is interesting. And this is this legislation that's floating around Washington right now, which is the reclassification of gig workers. That's something that would have a material impact on their cost structure for these shoppers going from being independent contractors to being treated as employees. That, I, I think the company is certainly up for it. It's a very well-managed company. Fiji does a great, is doing a great job. And so the Apuva, and this is a company that went from 200,000 shoppers to 500,000 shoppers uh, during the height of the pandemic. This is a well-managed business. But all that's being said is that there's no need right now for them to have to do an IPO in a very, very auspicious market
3: So, are you saying that you think if they have to classify these workers as employees, it's not going to dramatically negatively impact the company that they're prepared for it?
2: What I'm saying is that I think that they would be able to handle it Mm -hmm. because they're because it's going to. But it's going to certainly impact the valuation models that institutions are looking at for sure. And I think that in and of itself is a reason you hold off on rushing into an IPO market when you don't need to do it. It's this is a consumer facing business. The the aura of an IPO is important and there's no reason to rush into a market. You know, when you're in an environment like we're in right now, where there's there's so much red on the screens of institutional investors from past IPOs, you know, you really need to you know to pull off a transaction successfully. What you really need to do is you have to have everything aligned, mm-hmm. so you don't need this other variable right now out there, which is impacting their cost structure. So I guess what I'm saying is they don't need to do it right now. I mm-hmm. think they're up for the task if that's where the legislation happens, but that's that's far from a fait complete right now.
3: Well, just talked to Crystal about the era of the unprofitable IPO, which was hugely popular, especially among technology companies. Instacart saying it's turned the corner on profitability, so I imagine that might be one less thing for investors to worry about, you know, is the, is the era for unprofitable IPOs, is that over?
2: I, th- I think I wouldn't say it's I you never say never so I wouldn't say it's over forever but I definitely say it's over for the short term. I'd say that, you know, the there's there's a focus and we're seeing this in our business across the board. We do a lot of M&A transactions. We're doing a lot of capital raising. We just raised $500 million for a business. Uh there's a there's a big focus on more mature models that have provided a pathway to profitability or demonstrating that they're that their uh, models are available. Well, the days of companies going out with a you know somewhat somewhat of a pipe dream into the public markets which frankly they shouldn't have been in the public markets to begin with i think that at least for the near term we're not going to see that for a while
3: so how are you changing your strategy and what are you telling your clients amidst these evolving conditions
2: well, I think what we're t- what we're telling people uh, is one: the M and A market continues to be open, particularly from very, very good areas. Things like cybersecurity, ESG. We do a lot of work with digital analytic businesses and digital transformation companies. These are companies that have core uh, organic growth within their within their uh, addressable markets, which are going to continue. Uh, what we are telling people is that for those who are considering the IPO market right now in this environment, that is not something that we would strongly recommend uh, for sure. It's definitely not something that needs to be done. I think that we there are you know in between all this negative discussion is that still this year we're going to have a record amount of capital coming in to venture venture funds. It's just going to be more concentrated, uh, and I just think there's a flight. Like, it's just a general flight to quality. So that's why we're, you know, we're advising people that don't rush ahead to do something unnecessarily, but there's certainly a market and there's certainly transactions to be done, and transactions to be done at very, very fair valuations right. for companies that have more mature business models and, uh, and have the economics to support it.
3: How long do you think the downturn will last? We're hearing, you know, six months for the IPO window to reopen. I'm hearing from, from some other more skeptical folks two to three years before we're out of this.
2: Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. You look, when you look at what has happened over a period of time, right now, the, all these valuation models that, that institutional buyers look at are predicated on, on an interest rate. When you don't know what that interest rate is going to be, it's very very hard to build the models accordingly so you know you it's it becomes very very challenging when you have a fed that is focused on breaking the back of inflation and not, and that's certainly the right thing for them to be doing but it's hard it's hard to do that i would i think that once you get to a stall period of time in interest rate raises and you start to see that we're entering into, and you start seeing the labor statistics supporting that. I think you're going to see a you're going to see a uh, a market that's going to be more receptive. And when markets and when markets start opening to the IPO market, the companies that go out in those environments have to be pr- 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 primo. They have to be the best companies in their environment. And those, and that's really what's traditionally happens in any in any sort of bad IPO market. The market comes back because the best of the best go out there. They work. The institutions start feeling a little bit more comfortable, and then they, and then you start get, seeing additional companies come out. I would say, you know, to answer your question. Uh, I'm, I'm thinking mid-time mid next year. I would say, hmm. you know, Q4, no. Q1 still feels a little early. I would say maybe Q2, Q3, you start seeing it. And again, you know, the equity capital markets are an environment that's, you know, front-runner. So okay. we're going to be out in front of the economy.
3: You are on the more optimistic side than uh, Adam Birbaum, uh, GP Bullhound, thank you. Good to hear your perspective. Thank you. Coming up, Apple drops after a report about iPhone production, plus the company unveils new iPads for the first time in five years. We're going to talk about how the pandemic has changed the company's approach to tablets. This is Bloomberg.
6: What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise, and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in.
3: just launched its first fully redesigned entry-level iPad in five years, but shares dropped on a report. The company will cut production of the iPhone 14 Plus. Let's bring in Bloomberg's Mark German to discuss. Mark, this report coming from the information. What's your assessment about these production cuts?
7: I'm not sure what else Apple or investors or analysts should really expect when the phone comes out three weeks later than the other variations. It's basically last year's phone, but a little bit bigger, really no changes. And it's only $8 per month less than the iPhone 14 Pro Max. There's really not a good reason to buy that $900 iPhone 14 Plus, when again, on installments, a much better phone, the one you're showing on screen right now, it's only $8 per month. So if you're already spending $900 on a phone, chances are you can spend $1,100, especially if you break, over, uh, break up that difference over 24 or 30 months.
3: Interesting, you've also got some new reporting on the iPads, new iPads. Tell us how big a change you're seeing here and, and you know, why the change in strategy from Apple?
7: So two new iPads. One is the new iPad Pro with the M2 chip. The second is a new entry-level iPad. I'll start with the iPad Pro, that'll be a lot quicker. Smallest update in the history of the iPad Pro. The first one came out seven years ago in 2015. They've essentially added just that faster processor. It's about 15% faster. I don't think you're going to see major day-to-day gains from last year's model. There is a new Apple Pencil Hover feature you're showing, which now, if you take the stylus over the screen, it can sense 12 millimeters away that you're there, so you don't actually have to touch the screen. It's kind of a cool, but more of a software-based tweak. Uh, Now, the uh, entry-level iPad. I have no idea why anyone would buy the iPad Air. The iPad Air with the M1 chip, $600. This iPad entry level has the A14 chip, so a little bit slower, but for over $100 less expensive. So I think it's going to be an incredibly hot seller. I think it's going to do well. The question is, what is Apple thinking right now with its iPad strategy? It's really all over the place. You have five or six distinct models. You have a lot of overlap in both pricing and functionality and capacities and design and colors. Uh, The software story is not in good shape. People have been asking for major multitasking improvements for years now. I don't think Stage Manager, which they're launching with iPadOS 16 and these new iPads next week, is the answer. Uh, I think they will do well the holiday season, particularly with the new colorful entry-level iPad, but I think they need to give the iPad Pro some serious juice, both in terms of hardware and software, and really define what the vision and the future of the iPad is. I think right. it's going to be bigger screens and Mac-like multitasking, but we'll see what they have up their sleeves in 23 and 24.
3: Mark, you never sugarcoat anything. That's why we love you. Thank you for giving us giving it to us straight. Bloomberg's Mark Gurman, as always. Welcome back to Bloomberg Technology. I'm Emily Chang in New York. I want to get to what has been dubbed the Great Breakup, which is the phenomenon of women leaders leaving their companies at higher rates than ever before and the gap between women and men leaders quitting. That's the largest it has ever been. This is according to the 2022 Women in the Workplace study by McKinsey and leanin.org. I wanna talk about why we're seeing all of this with McKinsey senior partner, Lorena Yee and leanin.org co-founder and CEO, Rachel Thomas. Lorena and Rachel, I'm always looking forward to this report every year, mostly for a progress update, but this one is not so good. Rachel, explain what you mean by the great breakup.
8: Well, it's exactly what you said. For the first time that we've been tracking, women leaders are highly ambitious, they're as ambitious as men, but they're leading their company at the highest rate we've ever seen and at higher rates than men. And we already know women are underrepresented in leadership, so companies cannot afford to lose their precious few women leaders. And to put the scale of this in the perspective for you, Emily, for every woman director who gets promoted, two women directors are choosing to leave their company. That's one up and two out,
9: and that's a problem.
3: Lorena, you've been working in corporate America for so long, why is this happening?
9: Well, we see some very persistent headwinds, none of which are going to surprise you, and we see a change in the mindset of women. So some of those headwinds, Emily, we've seen lots of different stabs and cuts every day, but we saw that clearly about 40% of women leaders said that someone took credit for their idea in their meetings this year. We saw that they were two times more likely than men to be mistaken for someone junior, actually kind of undercutting their leadership. And the list goes on, and these are the day-to-day headwinds. They're also not getting credit for being great people leaders. And so what we see is that when women give more, when they make sure that work works remotely and flexibly, when they actually take care of wellness, when they pay attention to d they rarely receive credit. So those are some of the headwinds, which are signals to women, you're not going to advance. And the other thing that I mentioned is women's mindsets are shifting. They're saying, look, I am positively ambitious. I would like to get promoted. I would like another opportunity. And if that means I need to break up with you and go to another company, go to a competitor, go to a smaller company to get that promotion, to get that raise, I'm willing to bet on myself and do it.
3: And yet far fewer women are being promoted to manager for the eighth year in a row, uh, you're seeing this. Rachel, can you explain this to me? Because I, I feel like we're, we, we're getting a lot of conflicting information. You know, I've also heard that more women uh, are being promoted in-house or that you are, are actually seeing that as a potential path to success, uh, uh, perhaps a more accessible path to success than bringing in new women to leadership roles from the outside, Rachel.
8: Emily, you're right, eighth year in a row, that broken rung, at that first critical step up to manager is still broken. For every 100 women who were promoted to manager last year, I mean, for every 100 men, only 87 women were and 82 women of color. And here's why that matters. At the typical company, when you look at the manager level, 60% of managers are men and 40% of managers are women, which means literally there are fewer women to promote. So that's company's first pipeline problem, and now we're talking about their second pipeline problem, which is on top of that, women leaders are leaving. So our message to organizations this year is we've got to really double, triple down on holding on to our women leaders and our up-and-coming women leaders. Uh,
3: The report uh, cites one in four uh, C-suite leaders is a woman, and only one in 20 is a woman of color. Um, Lorena, are startups doing at all uh, any better of a job than corporate America at getting these numbers
9: up? I wish we could say yes. Emily, we see pretty consistent lackluster results across any size company in the United States. And so to give you a flavor of this, if you're a black woman, if you're a Latina woman, if you're an Asian woman, as you try and climb up, you just face so many challenges. And one thing that's really important to note is women of color are extremely ambitious. In fact, black and Asian women want to succeed and rise up to leadership roles the most out of all people in your organization. And yet they face these challenges. So just as an example, if you are a black woman, you are more likely, three times more likely in fact, to be questioned on your credibility. You know, you receive the least amount of support from your manager. And all of these things add up. And in a world where we have one in 20 women of color at the very top, and given all the emphasis that companies have talked about and are aware in terms of racial reckoning, you would think that we would be making more progress. And the fact of the matter is, is that we're not.
3: Let's talk about the silver linings. You talk about remote work. You mentioned uh, remote work earlier, but... Given these numbers, Rachel, how is remote work really showing up for women in the workplace?
8: We know before the pandemic, all employees, and particularly women, really valued flexibility. We also know that companies, many of them, are continuing some commitment to at least a level of flexibility. But when you look at remote and hybrid work, what's really interesting is it's not just about flexibility for women. They're actually having a better workplace experience when they're working from home. they're less likely to experience those microaggressions we often talk about. Getting mistaken for someone more junior, having someone take credit for your ideas. And those obviously have a huge impact on women. So it's just one stat. Women with disabilities are half as likely to experience microaggressions when they're working at home, at their kitchen table, than when they're they're working in the office. So certainly flexibility is not the end-all be-all answer, but it's important to women because it allows them to fit work into their lives and it's also delivering a better work experience. So, let's talk about a plan of action. Lorena, how can companies and managers
3: and leaders use this information to, to use this as an opportunity to get
9: better? Exactly. And so what this does is it points a spotlight on what's not working. And granted, there are a lot of things that are not working, but there are solutions out there. When We take a look at better companies, companies that are making more progress year over year. There are a couple things they do. One, they actually hold themselves and managers accountable. They don't just have dashboards that say that they need to improve, but they actually hold leaders accountable for that in their business reviews, in their performance evaluations. Another thing that we see is that they empower managers. They give them the tools to do better because certainly the positive intent is there. And the last thing is that we see that they do better in practices. So they really go beyond the basics. It's one thing to have an anti-bias training once a year. It's another thing to say, I'm going to have an anti-bias observer and I'm gonna really bust that bias in the moments that matter, which are performance reviews and evaluations. It's a whole nother thing to invest in career development versus just networking on women. Those are just a couple of examples, Emily, but there are some really concrete things that companies can do, and I'm extremely optimistic that they can step forward and do these things. So I have to ask you about, of course,
3: the founder of Lean In who started this movement, and that is Sheryl Sandberg, who, you know, now just a few weeks ago, uh, left after a very long tenure at Facebook. Rachel, what can you tell us about Cheryl's next act and you know, how much more time she's now going to be spending with Lean In and focused on these issues that you know, as part of a movement
8: that really she
3: catalyzed?
8: Yeah, so first of all, I love that Cheryl got to a point in her career where she was ready to leave because we all as women have a right to make choices about our career, as you know so well, Emily. And as she said publicly, she's always been incredibly involved with the foundation and the work we do and fighting to knock down the biases and barriers that get in women's way in the workplace, and she's going to continue to do that. And we are thrilled to have more Cheryl Sandberg um, (laughs) with us every day and really speaking up on these issues that are so critically important. So, Lorena, last question. There's a lot to be worried
9: about. What can we be optimistic about? We should be optimistic about young women. Um, so I'm so glad you asked. So in the survey this year, we found, and a lot of people wonder, women under 30, Gen X, Gen Z, what, what's their feeling? And I have some good news on that. They are so ambitious. They want to be senior leaders, and that has increased over the last couple of years. And they have a very clear view on a workplace that works for them, and they're going to step up and live into that. And so when we think about the future of women at work, I look at young women and I say, look, that is our future. We have to invest in them, develop them, and bring them up into the senior ranks.
3: All right. McKinsley's. Lorena Yee, leanin.org's co-founder and CEO, Rachel Thomas. Thank you both. And thank you for the work that you do on this report every year. We appreciate it. All right, coming up, why one crypto venture capitalist is asking the public to, public to look at crypto as a technology, not a token. That's next. This is Bloomberg.
6: What if everyone at work were an expert communicator?
1: Thank you.
7: Blockchain is a technology which is real, deployed in many places. We deploy it with Inc., with uh, Onyx, which some of you were part of, and yeah. Link, which some of you are part of, and the JP Morgan coin, which is a stable coin backed by a US dollar deposit at JP Morgan. And there are a lot of these technologies going to work. They're going to replace ledgers, they're going to make things cheaper. I think banks will be big users of that. And yes, it may disintegrate certain part of banking, so be it that we have that problem, like, with technology for the last 50 years. And so uh, my issue has always been with what you guys call a cryptocurrency, which I call a crypto token that doesn't do anything.
3: J.P. Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon last week doubling down on his disdain for crypto tokens, but backing blockchain technology. Earlier, Michael Anderson, co-founder of the crypto venture capital firm Framework Ventures, reacted to what Diamond has had to say on Bloomberg Crypto. Take a listen.
10: I think, you know, the part about blockchain being real, he's completely right. Um, There are a number of different application categories that are built on blockchain today. Cryptocurrency and and Bitcoin just happens to be one of them. NFTs happen to be another. Um, We're starting to see the rapid innovation of what these concepts can bring about, not just from a cost savings perspective for existing businesses, but new types of economic transactions that can exist in a new ecosystem that can connect into the financial ecosystem. You know, and, and you touched on it in the previous segment, but gaming happens to be one of those segments Uh, Of the market that's just completely new and and a new business model for gaming will bring about a huge amount of economic activity. He makes an interesting point about the
11: coins, Michael, and I've always wondered myself. I mean, even if you see the beauty in the blockchain, aside from, you know, um, faith from the group, what's the reason that these tokens should be worth a lot of money considering the fact that you don't really need even a full token to get on the blockchain and they're infinitely divisible
10: yeah, well, you know, I think one of the the hardest things that we did for ourselves as an industry is, is called this industry the cryptocurrency industry. Uh, you know, what it should have been, you know, maybe crypto commodities would have been a better moniker for some of these assets. But really, it's just a new technology platform. Uh, you know, there are reasons why tokens need to exist in these ecosystems to secure networks. You know, one of the ways that the proof of stake ecosystem for Ethereum works is you're taking Ethereum tokens and putting them up as economic security to validate transactions and provide security in that network. You know, there is a there is a core reason for that, and Ethereum in particular has a number of transaction the amount of transaction revenue that's going through it every single day is tantamount to something that's a massively scalable and profitable company if it were to be traded on the Nasdaq like a, a Salesforce uh, or a Workday. Um, so if you if we look at them from that perspective, you know there are assets in this ecosystem that are fundamentally valuable.
11: How how uh, or tell us about some of the businesses you're invested in that are doing actual work with the blockchain that has nothing to do with the value of the token. For example, smart contracts or recording um, events. I mean, what, what, what can the blockchain do that, that you're actually seeing it uh, seeing work in your companies?
10: Yeah, well, one of the companies that we just announced uh, a large Series A fundraise for was Stardust. Um, Hannah Miller, hats off to her, broke that story earlier today. Um, they they just raised a, a new round of funding, um, which we continued on with our existing investment. What they do is they provide an ecosystem for uh, traditional game developers to develop their games and integrate blockchain just with the ease of integration of an API and, and some tooling and some infrastructure. Um, we liken it to be to being sort of the Coinbase for Web3 gaming, where it'll just be the Arm ramps for hundreds of developers who are building in this ecosystem who wanted to integrate nfts and and frankly the integration of nfts just represents a new business model for game developers it's not you know a speculative fervor as we've seen with NFT gaming so far um the the tens of developers that are building on top of it are, are actually uh you know building and, and succeeding today um and we're just going to continue to see that trend continue
3: framework ventures co-founder michael anderson Let's take a look at Facebook now, which some might think has been abandoned, so to speak, by Mark Zuckerberg in favor of his new child meta. That's just one interpretation, including from our own Max Chafkin, who wrote this piece for Bloomberg Businessweek, focused on what Mark Zuckerberg is talking about now. And it's not Facebook.
0: It's the metaverse,
3: <laughs> but is he really ignoring Facebook? I mean, this is a huge platform, and it's not just Facebook. It's Instagram. It's WhatsApp. So
0: okay, so Facebook and and WhatsApp and Instagram. This is still the core of Meta's business, um, and and to you know, in some extent, they're they're continuing to um, you know make the trains run on time and try to generate revenue and profit. And and to be clear, uh, this part of the business generates huge amounts of profit. And if you just looked at that part of the business by itself, you'd say, wow you know, Mark Zuckerberg is doing a really good job. Um, But then when you sort of look at it in the context of this pivot, which is towards the metaverse, um, which happened, you know, a little less than a year ago, company changed its name, of course, away from Facebook um, to this new thing. And then when you look at just like the the comparison of user numbers, right, Um, you know, basically 3 billion people every single day are coming into Facebook's properties, uh, including Instagram, WhatsApp, and so on, Uh, it looks like about 200,000 people are in Horizon Worlds, which is the the flagship uh, virtual world that, that Zuckerberg was touting last week at Connect. And that's the kind of product, that's a product that like, if, face, if this happened at, in, with some other product that Facebook was offering, they would kill it, you know, instantaneously. This is the kind of thing, Mark Zuckerberg, I don't think, gets up in the morning for, you know, 200,000 uniques. Um, but of course, the company has decided that this is the future and they're pushing towards it and, and I, I would argue pushing towards it, you know, at great risk to the brand and maybe to society in general.
3: Facebook still has a lot of issues. Instagram has issues. We've got an election coming up. If he's not paying so much attention to these platforms, what hope does that give us that that these problems are going to be fixed?
0: Right. Well, it's important to say, you know, the company would argue that, yes, of course we're paying attention to these things. It's the core of our business. You know, Nick Clegg has been elevated to this, you know, more important role, you know, overseeing, uh, you know, stuff that includes elections. That said, I think when you go back, say, two years ago and look at, you know, what the company was talking about, what Mark Zuckerberg was talking about, they were very focused, not just on elections, but on the responsibility that Facebook owes uh, to its... To its users, to society, Zuckerberg was talking all the time about you know COVID vaccines, and right now we're talking about um, you know getting as many office workers into the metaverse, which um, of, which I don't think has anything to do with those um, you know issues of societal responsibility. Might in fact work against them, and also um, I'm not sure anyone even really wants that. I mean he's they're talking about um, you know. Uh, sending workers to the metaverse at a time when most CEOs are b- trying to get their CEOs back to the office, back in person. Mm-hmm. So it feels like they're they're working against a bunch of trends and maybe even working against their business.
3: So the question is, is this going to work? In hindsight, are we going to, you know, is, is he going to be able to say, look, I was right. I mean, is it similar to mobile when Facebook transitioned to mobile and everybody, not everybody, but it seemed like a big leap at the time. Is this the same or is this different?
0: It's it's certainly possible. And and if that happens, I think, you know, we will all you know bow down before you know Mark Zuckerberg's prognostication because he'll have done this um, you know amazing pivot two times now a couple of things you know one is that that pivot to mobile mobile Sheryl Sandberg was um, you know very involved he had uh, help that maybe he doesn't have uh, today and and just because he executes one pivot correctly I'm not sure you can sort of say well he's gonna execute the next pivot correctly and the 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 sort of leaks and the news that we've seen coming out of Facebook is not super encouraging Mm -hmm. I mean this is uh, we as as we we learned last week in reports from The Verge and The New York Times, um, Facebook is having trouble keeping its own employees um, you know, interested in its Metaverse app, which kind of makes you wonder how are they going to get other you know, people who don't actually work for Mark Zuckerberg excited about this.
3: All right. Well, check out Max's latest piece in Bloomberg Business Week. Max Shafkin. Always good to have you. Good to see you here in person. Thank you. And that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Technology. Coming up Wednesday, we're going to be talking with the co-CEO of Warby Parker, Neil Blumenthal, talking about the future of his business after uh, stock has tumbled a bit since their IPO. And don't forget to check out our podcast wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Emily Chang in New York. Today, this is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.